1: So we got to start with optimist fits like what is an optimist fit
2: an optimist fit is a nonconformist adventurer an optimistic misfit who lives with wild abandoned childlike wonder and unapologetic optimism so uh, I I just feel like because our culture has been so subsumed by hopelessness I mean people are committing suicide once every 40 seconds I wanted to ignite a fierce rebellion against the uh, the despair that has really racked our culture and has a run of the place. So uh, yeah, that's that's the idea behind optimists is that we're misfits. We don't fit in with hopeless society. We're not subsumed by systemic oppression. Instead, we're going to be like ridiculously absurd optimists in the face of all that life arrays against us.
1: So it's always half full. It's never half empty.
2: Well, I actually talk about that in the in the book, but. Um, David said, My cup runneth over. So, like, you know, an optimist is glass half full, a pessimist is glass half empty. But even scientifically, if a glass is half full of water, it's half full of hydrogen and oxygen, and the other half is. Full with nitrogen and oxygen, so I prescribed to what David said, my cup runneth over. Like, just technically, the glass is always full. It just depends on how you look at it.
1: No, that's perfect. Well, and we talk about the generation that's growing up in social media as, I feel like, way more connected than I was when I was growing up, but yet with that connection comes depression?
2: Absolutely. Um, sociological data and research has shown us that Gen Z, Gen Y, Millennials, Post-Millennials, and Centennials are now actually the most depressed generation on record. And part of that is because of social media. Now, I always like, tell people social media, which connects us, is a good thing. But a good thing becomes a bad thing if you worship it as a lowercase god thing. So, like, if you take – if you, if you look at any technology, all technology does is it expands upon already present human capacities. So, like, if you take a microphone, it doesn't invent vocal cords. It just makes them louder. Or if you look at a car, it didn't invent locomotion. It just makes locomotion faster. So, too, if you look at social media, it didn't invent connection. It just made us more connected than ever. Um, but if you turn up the volume too loud on technology, it collapses in on itself and destroys the very thing it was intended to create. So if you look, for example, at a, a microphone, if you turn it up too loud, then what happens is you get feedback. And it actually becomes harder to hear the human voice. Or if you turn up the knob too loud on cars, um, if you have too many cars, you get rough or traffic at 5 p.m. in L.A., and now it's faster to walk. Or if you turn up the volume two out on technology, what happens is social media, the very thing that intended to connect us, can uh, turn into comparison rather than connection, and it destroys the very thing it was intended to create because no longer are we connecting with each other. We're in public isolation comparing ourselves with one another, You know, comparing our behind-the-scenes with other people's highlight reels. So um, that's why I always like to say you know, like, Paul used technology To his benefit, like, you know, he used the Roman roads, the Persian mailing system, the dictation of letters, and he used it to, you know, share his message. And so, too, I want to use technology as a means to give people hope when it's starting to collapse in on itself and destroying connection through comparison. Does that make sense?
1: Oh, totally. No, I'm with you 100%. I think that's fascinating, making um, excellent points I'm thinking about uh, the number of friends or even followers and all of the social media things, but yet all all these people that have friends or followers still have this uh, sense of isolation, but yet uh, you talk about a squad.
2: Yes. I believe if you want to go fast, you should go alone, but if you want to go far, you should go together because, you know, the way not to give up is to squad up. I was actually just thinking about this today, but... um, sociologists and psychologists tell us that grief is a form of separation anxiety. All grief is a form of separation anxiety. So, like, have you ever noticed if you leave the house, a dog panics? That's because dogs are pack animals, and they know that they have a better chance of survival out in the wild when they're they're in a pack. And so when you leave the house, that primal instinct kicks in, and they have this separation anxiety. The same is true, uh, sociologists tell us, in the human psyche, that, uh, we know we'll survive to better together as a tribe, so if, if we if we isolate from each other, um, what happens is it causes anxiety and in fact, they tell us all grief is a form of separation anxiety, which is why like have you ever wondered why people have like this very passionate desire to text the person that they just broke up with or that just <laughs> broke up with them like yeah. shortly after you need to text them because grief is a form of separation anxiety, and so for me, I just really want to propagate this idea of adventures with God and adventures with squad that, you know, a lot of times we think we want to disappear. but what we really want is just to be found. So we're better together. We're stronger together and going through life as a crew. Uh, well, the Bible puts it this way. Two are better than one, but a triple braided cord is not easily broken. It says one can put to flight a thousand, but two can put to flight 10,000. What that means is you can accomplish 10 times more with two people as compared to just one. So squat is so important not to isolate, but to infiltrate.
1: I'm a firm believer of that. I think that what they say, no man is meant to be an island. The whole idea is the enemy wanting to isolate you and feel like you're the only one dealing with whatever the problem is.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm very passionate about this message, too, because I really believe that um, you know the scars we share become lighthouses for other people that are headed toward the same rocks we hit. And, you know, our scars can become our stars. Jesus didn't just say, here are my words. He's the word made flesh. He said, touch my wounds. You know, he put feet to his faith and wheels on it. And so I I believe that these problems um, are something that we don't have to try to negotiate or navigate alone, but that together uh, we can really make this difference and change our world and, and impact our generation.
1: Ben, I've always said that I believe that God puts us through things not only for what He wants to teach us, but as we get a little bit on the other side, uh, how He can use our story for others uh, in in the realm of grief. Uh, can you share a little bit about uh, some of the things that you've been through and, and how you've been able to work through that?
2: Yeah, so I went through 10 years of chronic depression, and I was suicidal. I mean, I took up a knife to kill myself. At one point, that's how low it got for me. Um, and, yeah, every day I just felt like the poisonous bank of mental fog would roll in by mid-afternoon in the morning time. My future seemed subsumed by an infinite gray. At night I was just exhausted. And, I mean, I just felt I felt no life, Zoe, really energy in me. And for 10 years I went through this, this bout with chronic depression. Uh, and also, you know, my sister died in a car accident. My brother died of cancer. Um, I mean, we just go through stuff. I went through a romantic heartbreak a few years ago after an eight-year relationship that just left me devastated. I felt like a robot with dead batteries. Like I couldn't even move. I was staring at walls. And so the, the message that I'm sharing about hope is a message that literally changed my life. Like, God used this to save me. And so if you felt like you found the cure, the panacea, the nepenthe to cancer or HIV, AIDS, like you would shout that thing from the rooftops. And I feel like I found the cure to depression and I write about that in this book, Optimists, and that's why I'm, like, shouting it to the world. Does that make sense?
1: Oh, totally, totally. I, I, I feel that that's the thing. Sometimes we have to go through some of our darkest days, that whole valley before the mountaintop, right?
2: Absolutely. And there's this story where the Israelites were fighting the Syrians, and they kept winning on the mountaintops. And so the Syrians said, well, your God is the God of the mountain and not of the valley because they believed in localized deities back then. Like there was a God for the river, a God for the mountain, a God for, you know, the 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 groves. Mm-hmm. And so the Lord positioned the Israelites down into the valley, and the Israelites beat the Syrians in the valley too. And then the Syrians said, okay, your God is not just the God of the mountain, he's the God of the valley. And I think that's very powerful because we need to show our world that the God of hope is not just with us or for us in the good times, Uh, He's also with us and for us when we're going through the deepest troughs. He's not just the God of the mountaintops. He's the God of the valleys as well. And that's why I love how like Jesus heard, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The Father spoke that over him, both when he was on Mount Hermon, transfigured, that's the tallest mountain in all of Israel geographically, but he also heard, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased when he was baptized in the Jordan River, which is right next to the Dead Sea, and that's the lowest place on planet Earth. And what I like to say is, Christ in you is the hope of glory. So the Father's pleased with the Christ in you, whether you're at your tallest peak or going through your deepest valley, whether you're on Herman or at Jordan, whether you're on the fighting on the mountaintops or fighting in the valleys, He's just as pleased with you. He's just as for you, and uh, this isn't the end of your story.
1: Mm. Well said, loving this Ben so much. Uh, talk a little bit about, uh, of course, the word we're hearing a lot—hope—and then you are the founder of Hope Generation.
2: Yes, yeah, so. Hope in the Old Testament, like when the psalmist said, in thy word do I hope. The word for hope in the Old Testament is, uh, is it actually refers to being knitted. So it's not loosey-goosey. It is knitted to ultimate reality. Um, so our hope does not unravel when our circumstances do. It is knitted to the source, to the prime mover, to the origin from whence the universe springs. Um, in, the, in the New Testament, the word for hope is el-peace in Greek, and it literally means joyful, confident welcome. So this is the joyful confidence whereby we welcome the miracles of God into our life. So hope is not hype. Hope is based on the facts that if God has been faithful in my past, it's only a priori logical to assume I should be faith-filled about my future and fulfilled today, because God's never failed anyone, and he ain't gonna start with me.
1: (laughs) Very good. (laughs) I'm glad
2: you like that. That makes me happy. (laughs) (laughs)
1: we always think that we're the exception, right? We're the one that God doesn't love. We're the one that doesn't have the promises fulfilled in, and that's the negativity we have to fight against in our own heads.
2: Yeah, we can't believe we're anomalies or isolated incidents. If you read the Bible, God's faithful to his children, and and so, yeah, it's absolutely crazy to assume, like, you know how they always famously define insanity as doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result? And if you just— keep, like, seeing God's faithfulness, and you're you're like, but this time he's not going to see me through. It's crazy.
1: (laughs) Well, one of the things is you are an official fun-haver, so I think we need more fun, right? Yeah, we need more fun. Fun is
2: fundamental. Uh, Jesus put the fun back in funeral. He caused the dead to raise, the lame to leap, the blind to see, the mute to speak, the deaf to hear, the lost to get found. And so I just think that it's not only going to be fun to change the world, but fun is the very thing that sets that change in motion because our generation is so depressed. We've lost what it means to have true fun. And so I believe that fun is not a message you move on from when you grow up, but fun is a message you move deeper into the more childlike you become. And that's how you enter the kingdom. Jesus said by becoming like a child, in fact, children who are professional fun havers themselves, they laugh between 200 and 400 times every day whereas the average adult lasts 13 to 17 times per day. So, uh, you know, the older we're getting, the less joy we're having, and I want to change that.